Hello, uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, so we are reading Neil Stevenson's The Confusion, uh, which is the second volume of the Baroque Cycle. And we're going to go through this whole uh, series over uh, a large number of episodes. But uh, yeah, but we're still going to now, we're still going to work on uh, The Confusion for now. Um, but we're about halfway through. Uh, for better or for worse. This has really been fun for me. I've really been enjoying reading it. Um, anyways, uh, this episode is going to be all set in book five of the series, which is called the Junkto. Um, so as I've already explained, the confusion goes back and forth between the two different books. They're intertwined to keep the timelines in in intact. Basically, book five is the story of Eliza, uh, and book four is the story of Jack Shafto. Uh, so we spend this whole... 100 pages or so, or more, actually, uh, with uh, with Eliza and the various things she's going through in the aftermath of the death of the Duke d'Arcachon uh, in, the, in the previous chapters. Uh, he was killed in Cairo by Jack Shafto as they, they made off with his uh, magic gold. Uh, just how magic it is is something that will be revealed later in the story. But anyways, that's where we're at. So the date that we start is uh, 1690. And we're actually going to cover a couple years of time here. Um, this is the main setting here, in addition to the, the death of the, the Duke and how that has ramifications for Eliza, is the, is the ongoing uh, Nine Years' War, or the War of the League of Augsburg, or the War of the Grand Alliance, whatever terminology you want to use for that that global conflict. In fact, the way Neil Stevenson talks about it is really we're talking about like a 30-year war between France and England, beginning with the War of the League of Augsburg and then extending to the War of the Spanish Secession, even though that's mostly off-screen. Um, basically, the third volume of the book is set in the aftermath of the War of the Spanish Secession. So really, this is our chance to really study how war is affecting the economies, the politics, and the, you know, the lives of individuals in Europe at the time. So I, um, I think that's one reason why people like the confusion. I, uh, most reviews I've read of this series seem to think the confusion is the best of, of the best of the three volumes, and the most in engaging. It's also because it's got action, it's got a lot of drama, it's got a lot of uh, tension going on here. Um, thematically, it's it's not maybe as pumped up as as the first volume because the first volume is really setting up. Quicksilver is really setting up so much thematically, um, and then this the rest is really kind of payoff of those different threads that he sets up in Quicksilver. So, you know, so far actually, Quicksilver is I think might be my favorite of the books just in the way it does set up these themes. But anyways. Let's jump in and talk a little bit uh, about this. We start out with a, a letter to, uh, from Eliza to uh, Gottfried Leibniz uh, in late September 1690. So she's still dealing with the aftermath of having essentially her, her money all stolen by the, by the French state. Uh, it's a common thing the French did at that time. Is how they paid for the wars. It's just like taking money, forcing donations, forcing loans from from its rich aristocracy. 
And that's what happened to Eliza, too. She made a lot of money. She was intertwined in Versailles. And once she was found out as being a spy for William of Orange for a while, she basically was out there, you know, she had to do sort of what they said. So they, they actually, there's a whole pirate thing with Jean Bart that led to her having to hand over her money. And she's still sort of dealing with all of that um, in her personal life. And, and how it's affected her. She's essentially become a pauper at this part of the story. But by the end of this volume, she's going to be extremely wealthy again, uh, both through marriage and through her own brilliance and machinations. So pretty quickly, though, we get into the ramifications of the death of the Duke. And we get a... Basically, there's a birthday party for the Duke at the Hotel Dakashan, basically his estate, um, which has all been remade. So I think Eliza starts to learn a little bit about what Jack did there. Back in Volume 2 in King of the Vagabonds, how he basically smashed the place and crashed the party, crashed the masquerade, uh, cut off the hand of Etienne Dakashan, the son of the Duke, and basically made a, a hash of it in front of the king. So they've had to kind of totally rebuild the estate, and, and Stevenson gets into the details of, of why that is, and how just it had to be entirely remodeled. And that's all going on, but they're trying to get their, their reputation back intact with this with this birthday party, and Elias, of course, is there. You have Etienne Dakashan, who's the father, ostensibly the father of her, of her bastard. And we know from the previous episode that Eliza has been planning and is still currently planning to assassinate the Duke probably during this dinner party at some point or near around there. She's got the poison from, um, is it the Madame de Leon, this kind of Satanist and poisoner. She's given him, she's given her the poison she needs to, to kill him. Um, but, but kind of overhanging this party is... Jack Shafto. It's 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 actually kind of nice because Jack's although they've been separated from Eliza, he's been separated from Eliza for so many years that he's still having this big impact on her life across the way, across uh, time and across space. It's a pretty great moment where the the coach of the Duke is arriving and it's, it's white because it's I guess that's the color he chooses because he's into these albino horses, and so he's got this. Beautiful white coach coming. Everyone thinks it's the Duke. And he arrives at the party. And I think the king's there too, right? So he arrives at this party. Or he's, everyone thinks he's arriving. But he's not, right? And instead comes out this one person that Jack Shafto left alive. And he killed the, the retainers around the Duke. and killed the Duke. And he gave, remember, he gave this like speech when he kills the Duke. Quote, Decorded again. The deed you are about to witness was done for the love of a woman whose name I will not say, for she knows who she is. It was done by half-cock Jack Shafto Le Mudur, the king of the vagabonds, Alize back Quicksilver. These are all different names he's picked up. So Jack Shafto, half-cock Jack is kind of his English name. Uh, Le Mudur is how he kind of appeared in French Picaric novels. King of the vagabonds is another name he went by. Alize back is something he picked up. As his kind of legacy spread in the Middle East. I don't know if he's ever been referred to Quicksilver before. He's just, I guess that's the name he's adding for himself. But anyways, they announce, this guy announces what Jack Shafter did. And and I think they have the head of, of the Duke in his body and all this stuff too in the, in the cart. So it's a really dramatic moment. 
where in front of the king it's revealed that the duke, this really high-ranking person in the French aristocracy, in the French court, like the head of the navy essentially, has been killed by this, this vagabond who everyone assumed was dead, right? Because it was known he had syphilis, he was made into a galley slave, Eliza thought he was dead, Bob Shafto thought he was dead, his brother, uh, you know, everyone who had contact with him just assumed he had died at some point over the years. But suddenly he appears in this really, really wonderfully dramatic way um, at this point in the story. So this immediately becomes a problem for, for Eliza because uh, DeVoe finally gets this chance to stick it to Eliza, who's already been impoverished, but she's still got her kind of reputation in the court because she's kind of been making money for a lot of French aristocrats. So he finally steps forward and says, like, I know about the relationship between Elias and Jack Shafto. How does he know this? Well, he's been keeping dibs on her since they met in Amsterdam. And there was this brief, just one hour, where Jack and Eliza reconnected. I guess it was in 1688 or so, before he went on his voyage that got him captured by, by Barbary Corsairs and you know, turned him into a galley slave. She met with him, and they had their breakup, their dramatic breakup. But people would have saw, seen it, right? And people knew, and Devoe knew. So Devoe knew this relationship, and now finally he gets to use this to out Eliza as basically being the woman that Jack was referring to here. And he's about to reveal this to the king, of all people, right in front of Louis XIV, the king. And Eliza then is forced to save herself. And the way she does this is she essentially accepts uh, Etienne d'Arcachon's marriage proposal, which was actually hinted at earlier in this little bit in a few pages before, where there's actually a scene in the church with uh, Edouard de Jacques and other people who were going to set up to marry the two, but she didn't accept it at the time, but now she's forced to. So in front of the king, she steps in and says, I have something to say first, and in front of the king, she says, I'm going to help carry on the d'Arcachon line, I'm going to, on this grave day, uh, marry his son, the new duke. So she becomes duchess she through this marriage, right? And the king, of course, grants this, and this blocks DeVoe from doing anything against her. And then De DeVoe has to make up some nonsense about how it's a symbol of the enemies of France or something that they have to be vigilant against. But really, he's been, he's kind of out of the story at this point, frankly, but um, uh, it's, it was his last chance to try to stick it to Eliza, and he fails because of this uh, this marriage proposal, which, which Eliza accepts. That's one thing that happens for her, and it's kind of bad news, because now she's stuck with this this kind of weirdo. So about that Dachachans, I think I've talked about them quite a lot, obviously, because they've come up a lot, but they're kind of genetic rejects, right? Like There's that like that kid, first kid, Jean-Jacques, um, who is probably Rosignol's kid, the cryptanalyst, but, you know, I guess it could be Etienne's. But et, but the Dakashans kind of have, like, inbred genes or something, so they, they end up with a lot of like, mutant kids. Uh, and Jean-Jacques is not that, so it's probably not his kid. But Etienne doesn't want legitimate children, legitimate sons to carry on the family name. And so that's why he wants to marry Eliza. And... Anyways, but now she's the Duchess, so she's kind of been able to uplift herself, even though she's pretty impoverished at this point in the story. She's able to uplift herself to the status of a Duchess. She was already Countess de la Zour. She already got this title, 
but now she's uh, you know much higher up as the as the wife of the new duke um now that's one thing but the other thing going on is like the whole thing with the gold right that's in the subtext here is jack wasn't just killing the duke so that's the drama of the scene but he also stole all this or he helped with the cabal steal this solomonic gold right this is essentially magic gold right stored by solomon kept in asia finally discovered by some expedition and and brought to Spain, brought to New Spain, then brought over to Spain and captured by them. They thought they were stealing silver, but actually they are stealing this very special shipment of Solomonic gold, which uh, has all sort of alchemical properties, as we'll see later on. Um, but that's that's something not just the Duke wanted, but like people like Lothar Hackelhaber were, you know, alchemists wanted it, and Newton's interested in this stuff, Newton's been looking for it. As we'll see later on, he becomes head of the mint, largely because he wants to collect as much gold as possible to search for this uh, alchemical gold, the philosophical mercury, whatever, the, the magic gold. Uh, and they eventually they find it, right? Because now it's in the system, sort of. It's already been sort of split up. You saw that in Cairo. Like They had like seven carts of this gold, and like three of the carts got basically looted by local people. So this gold is already kind of spreading, getting spread into the system. In various ways. But the person most immediately pissed off by this is Lothar von Hackelhaber, who, this German banker, you know, I guess he's kind of a fit-in for other German bankers of the time. But he is, he feel, he thinks, you know, now he knows Jack stole this gold from him. So he actually kidnaps uh, Jean-Jacques, who was like, staying in an orphanage in Germany. He basically just adopts him. Um, he doesn't really, it's not really much so much a kidnapping. He just sort of adopts this orphan uh, that Eliza, Eliza was keeping him kind of safe in Germany. He adopts him, renames him Johann, and he let, tells Eliza this. He, he writes her a letter saying, you and your vagabond have something of mine, I have something of yours, specifically uh, Jean-Jacques. And one of the more uh, tragic, I guess, uh, parts of the story for Eliza is this loss of, of Jean-Jacques and this loss of her son. And the fact that he's going to, from a young age, be raised by Lothar, Lothar von Hackleheber and become a, you know, essentially a, you know, a loving son for this man. All right, so that, that wraps up, well, it doesn't really wrap up any plot lines, but it sort of resets Eliza's story in significant ways. Then we flip to, uh, to Saxony with Leibniz having a conversation with Faccio. So this is kind of a little side chapter in which we return to the themes of natural philosophy and, and Leibniz's philosophy and all that. Really, this is like the beginning of, a, of, of our introduction to monadology, which of course would be a big idea of Leibniz. Essentially, the idea was, like for Newton, his idea was that the system works because God makes it that way, right? And God's always intervening in the world and you know, that's why the inverse square law works and the planets move is because God's always intervening, right? Or there's some kind of alchemical essence, you know, some kind of magical essence to the system. And people like Daniel Waterhouse and, of course, Leibniz reject this out of hand, wanting a rational explanation of this. And the biggest problem was, was like, a force at a distance, right? Like, if I push a rock... 
it moves because I pushed it, right? It's easy to explain why that happens. But gravity is force from a distance. So how can you explain this? Like if a, if a star suddenly appears, right, in a place, anything, you know, everything in the universe in some ways affected by that instantaneously, right? Um, and that is something that they can't really explain, how force can happen from a distance. Um, why does it need time to, to be affected? Like if it was a wave or a, you know, particles or something, that would take time. So basically, Leibniz has this idea, which I guess prefigures maybe Einstein in some subtle ways. Um, basically, the, that monad. So the universe is made up of all these different infinitely small, an infinite, there's an infinite number of them, but they're also infinitely small particles uh, that sense and perceive each other and can be aware of each other. All right, so that's kind of the monad idea. And so he's, he's sitting around in Germany talking with Faccio, who's visited about this. He's also talking about the, because he's working at this time on, on Sophie, Sophie's library, like Sophie of Hanover's library. And you know, his big thing is like, how do I categorize the knowledge of the library, right? With the, you know, why does this book sit next to this book? Why does this book, how do I find the book I want, right? So we've already seen this talked about a little bit with Daniel Waterhouse in his, in 1713, in his Massachusetts Institute of Technological Arts, where he's trying to create a logic mill, which is really all about how to categorize knowledge. So... So this is also laid out in this chapter with this discussion with Faccio, like that basically that Leibniz's idea is that every concept will have a prime number associated with it, right? So then your products of your primes will always be unique numbers. So the example would be like if you have a book by Plato about turtles, well, Plato would be given the prime number two, turtles would be given the prime number seven. So a book by Plato about turtles would be 14. So you just know that and you'd be able to make the, you know, figure out which which primes this is the product of and then, you know, figure it out this way, right? Or if you know the topics, you can just multiply the primes and go to that place in the library, right? This seems kind, I guess this is what Leibniz was working on. I'm not that sure. It, it seems a really, really bizarre idea for me, I think subjects are, you know, putting books of the same subject close together makes more sense. But even, you know, even so, like, there's issues, right? Like, if you take the Library of Congress system, right? So E is U.S. history, right? So you know if, if you want U.S. history, you go to the E's, right? And, and then there's different subcategories. And, and at the time, I even knew, like, the exact like, numbers after it. So I knew, like, DS... 700s, I think it was, was Chinese history. I would know where to go. And I could go to any library that used the Library of Congress system and find it, right? But labor history, right, wasn't with the E's or the D's. The D's was like world history and the E's was U.S. history. It would be with like the HS's or was it the HD's, some number like that, which was economics. So labor history got put under economics. And if you don't really know the system, I guess it's not perfect. Right? So even though I think it's a really good system, it's not perfect. Leibniz here is trying to create a perfect system. Um, the problem is these numbers very quickly will get huge, right? Because you're not just, you know, it's convenient to say Plato's two and turtles are seven. But by the time you list all the subjects, you have how many prime, you know, 
huge primes and you're some you're creating the products of them so what do you need well you need a computer right you essentially need the logic mill to do that and that's what that's what daniel waterhouse is working on so he's but there's a lot of good stuff in this section of the book not only about the roots of modernology but also just about you know knowledge categorization and leibniz's idea that somehow if we perceive all the knowledge we're in the aggregate we're kind of reaching the limit towards the perception that's accessible by god uh something he talked about in the very first volume so i, I really like this section on this and this it's it's a nice setup it's like winter in germany and they're playing with snowballs and it's, it's really a wonderful uh, little moment um but also Faccio reminds leibniz here that he has a rival and that rival is isaac newton and that of course will will lead into the final book of the series, which is which the climax of is really a philosophical debate between Leibniz and Newton. Okay, so then we switch to uh, the story of Bob Shafto, 1690 to 1691 in Ireland. Um, this section, I don't want to spend too much time on. Um, it's a good section that does give us a window into another part of life during this war, uh, this, this long war. Um, now, Bob's in Ireland serving under uh, John Churchill, later the Duke of Marlborough, who would be such a major figure in the War of the Spanish Secession uh, during the reign of Queen Anne. But at this point, he's still like, I guess, lower rank or whatever. But they're fighting in Ireland. Why are they fighting in Ireland? Well, uh, part of this war, I guess there's something called the Williamite Wars. This is an extension of the War of the League of Augsburg. Is uh, you have... James II, who's still alive, trying to reclaim his throne. And the way you do that, if you're a Catholic, is you go to the Catholic parts of, of places under, British, under English control, Ireland, right? And try to build up your support there. So that's where the fighting was taking place. At least one front of the war was in Ireland. And so Bob's there uh, with his company. And a lot of this is just like they're kind of bored and it's like winter, they're wintering there. They don't have anything to do for long periods of time. Bob Shafto is going to spend like 25 years in the English army in various features. And you can imagine a lot of that was just downtime, uh, waiting between campaigns, waiting for a war to end, holding a territory until a peace treaty was signed or whatever. Um, just the boredom of the war, right? There'd be battles, but most of what it is was just sitting around in camp doing various things. And Bob even starts up like this fencing club among soldiers, teaching them how to sword fight. But here he is. Now, remember, earlier he had actually challenged the Earl of Upnor to a duel. Why did he do this? He did this because the Earl of Upnor had enslaved his girlfriend, essentially, Abigail, during the Bloody Assizes, which was the suppression of the Duke of Monmouth Rebellion. And so he's got this desire to get revenge on the Earl of Upnor and free his wife. Um, so conveniently, the Earl of Upnor is fighting on the side of the Catholics, on the side of James II in this Ireland campaign. So we got a lot of fun stuff of just like fencing practice and, and just the drudgery and the day-to-day -day kind of horror of, of just like living out your life as a soldier in this time. Right? It's... You know, that's why Bob Shafto's character is really actually kind of important to the story, not just because he's Jack's brother, but he gives us a whole other window into the lower classes, right? You know, you could become a vagabond, right? But 
The only thing you could do is join the army. And what did that actually entail for you? And it wasn't because you were particularly loyal, maybe to the country, maybe you were loyal to a commander, maybe you weren't, maybe you you deserted at the first chance you got. People seem to be doing that a lot. Uh, maybe you're just trying to make money, right? So and that is, it's great stuff, really. I, I think this is, and if you like action, this section has a little bit of it too. Um, but I'm not going to say too much about actually what goes on here. Essentially what happens is at the Battle of Aughrahim, which is a real battle that happened during this uh, war in Ireland, uh, the forces of James II are crushed, and Bob Shafto is able to fight mano on mano with uh, the Earl of Upnor. And he gets his ass kind of kicked. <laughs> he gets actually stabbed through the liver, something really horrible like that. Um, but uh, an Irish soldier is able to like bang him on the head, knock it, you know, basically bludgeon their old loved one to death, and he dies. But uh, Abigail's nowhere to be found. So the story of Bob Shaft is not quite over. It's actually not going to be over for until book three. But the question of Abigail's wife is still open. He, he actually says to her, says to Jack, or says to Bob, I mean, before he dies, like, not only is she like sold off to other people. You know, but she's got social diseases. She's got essentially saying she's got syphilis given to her by me and by my different comrades who, who raped her repeatedly. Pretty horrific stuff. But you know, he's he's dead. Earl of Upnor is dead. So one of our major villains of the first half of the series is is now dead. Two of our two of our villains, right? Uh, the Duke Darkashan and Earl of Upnor both killed at about the halfway point through the through the whole series. All right, then for the rest of this episode, we're going to talk about Eliza's scheme. So this is, this jumps ahead a year or so to April of, of 1692, and they're at St. Malo in France, which is, I think it's on the coast somewhere. Um, and she's been married to Etienne for a while. I think she's already had one kid. Uh, actually, the section begins with her and Bob having sex together. And he, so he's kind of on leave. He's gotten a leave and he's going to France. Meet up with Eliza. He's kind of posing as a spy of some sort in France, but really he's there to, to check up with Eliza, who kind of agreed to help him out with the Abigail or whatever. And they have, and they're lovers, essentially. I, I really think Eliza is sleeping with Bob somewhat through, you know, vicariously to sleep with Jack, who. She can't have sex with because Jack's half cocked, right? You have half his dick cut off, you know. And a syphilis cure went bad. But she tells him how she lost her first son, how their other son, uh, I guess, uh, Etienne's number one, her number two, is kind of a halfway. He's actually Etienne's legitimate son. Um, and how she wants a third. She wants to have a kid with Bob Shafto. She wants to have a child with, with Shafto's, you know, better genes, the Shafto genes. You know. She talks, those talks about how, like, uh, Johan, or John Jock, her first son, the one with Rosignol, has, is being raised by Lothar Hacklehaber, and he's happy. He's happy in this new family. So he's kind of lost her, lost him forever. So she has to sort of make up for that by having like, another kid that's actually hers, not just uh, an extension of, of Etienne Darkashan. 
Well, the next scene then is at the Chateau d'Arcachon, so at her new house. Um, this is in, in St. Marlo as well. That's, that's why she's living there, because the Arcachons have, a, have an estate there. And uh, we get this, this kind of party game that she leads. They're talking about the war. And so the French are going to try to invade England. But the problem is, is how do you pay troops, right? So the typical thing... I don't know how much, this must be based somewhat on reality. Stevenson certainly researched this book really well. Is you pay in like the local currency. Because the local soldiers, they need to like buy whores and buy bonnet food or whatever they need. They need local currency, right? So if you're invading another country, you can't pay them like just in French silver. You have to pay them in English silver. Because that's what they need if there's going to be a long campaign, right? Um... And then, of course, silver can always be recast and recoined afterwards when you return to France or whatever. But soldiers, the, the money just kind of passes through. Right? They, they don't keep it very long, it seems. But the problem is that there's no English coinage. Like, the, the French can't get their hands on English silver pennies because they don't exist. So this is actually, the context of all this is the horrible state of British currency at this point, which is obviously is an ongoing theme of this book. So what to do about this? And Eliza has an idea. And she basically says, we need to coin our own silver in England after we invade. And how do we do that? Well, we have to get silver sent from like, you know, like a bank. A bank has to send silver to, to England. We just take it to the mint. The mint will turn it into English pennies and we'll use it to pay our soldiers right um and then to get that is you have to like give the bank something an equal amount of value so they'll send the, the silver right and eliza's formulating this plan basically as a way to screw the von hecklehabers who she's still pissed off at about stealing her her kid so her she knows this invasion is 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 doomed right uh when's the last time there's been a successful invasion of england fucking Norman William the Conqueror, the Norman invasion. She knows it's kind of failed, but she's selling this idea to pay for the invasion force, their salaries, with English minted coins. And as long as everyone gets paid along the way, right? So, you know, as long as the Packelhabers get their cut, as long as the English mint gets their cut, as long as the local people there, everyone, as long as everyone gets their cut, they'll go along with this, even though it's invading their country, right? So she play, she explains this all with like a party game, where she gives everyone a different role, She's, and she moves around little pieces, saying this is our silver, and this is what we do with it, and she convinces these high-ranking people uh, at the party that this is the best way to um, to uh, get the silver to, to France. It's a wonderful moment. This is actually the highlight, I think, of the Eliza story in many ways. It's, it's her greatest scheme that she fulfills. Because basically what it all comes down to, and it's, it's revealed later on essentially what her plan is, is that if this is going to raise, like if the French crown is buying all this silver to pay for soldiers, and it's going to raise the price of silver, right? So the Hacklehabers are going to want to also invest in silver, 
They're, they're also going to buy silver on the side for themselves because they think the price of silver is going to go up, right? But if the invasion fails, as Eliza know, knows it will fail, then that will... Anyone who invested in silver is going to end up poor, right? So it's basically shorting silver the same way she shorted the was it House of Sluice in the earlier book. It's the same kind of scheme. To use war, it's a scheme to, to short... Uh, a commodity. Then it was like lead or something, and now it's going to be it's going to be silver itself. Now, part of the question here is like, why is there no silver in England? Well, it's because you know British currency is not that good. People don't fully trust it. People are still passing around pieces of eight. And then I think a lot of the silver is going east, right? So silver goes east. Uh, that's where it ends up because that's what the Chinese want. The Chinese they they collect taxes in silver. They buy they they want to exchange in silver. So the money's flowing to the to the to the east, right? Now this is ultimately going to set up also what Isaac Newton's going to do when he takes over the mint, which is make sure the gold is fucking rock solid, right? So good currency pushes out bad. So the idea was to exchange all this silver that's flowing, or all this different weird silver, like the pieces of eight and all this other these English pennies and things, replace it with like gold guineas. Um, and basically, if the silver all moves to the east, then it doesn't matter anymore because you have a good, solid gold gold back currency. But this is before all that, and so Elias is able to kind of manipulate the, the this this lack of silver in England, you know, the invasion, the international currency markets, the German bankers, and French war debt. That's the other part of it. Is like the French war debt is how the French pay for the silver. They don't have cash that they give to the German bankers, the von Hackelhabers. They give them debts, right? French government debt. And, right? Who's to say if the French are going to follow through, pay those debts off, right? So it's it's a bit of a risk, so That's but that's part of what banking's involved, right? You're always risking losing some of it. So it's kind of a complicated plan, and Stevenson, I think, does a good job of using this dinner party and all these characters and having them all play act different parts of the scheme to convince Etienne, to convince uh, Pontchartran, Pontchartran, is that his name? His, like the basically the exchequer of sort of the finance guy for the French, convince all these people to follow her plan to to get the silver to England, basically by having the Hacklehaber send it uh, to London. She'd be there, so you could send it to the Mint, get it transformed into silver, right? And and that's that's essentially the scheme she lays out. So then she's then we see her setting this all up with letters. Uh, first, she writes to the von Hacklehabers, and she basically says like, "This was a good deal for you. I forgive you for stealing my kid." But it's a good deal. I, I don't know. I think Von Hackleber kind of buys into this scheme a little bit too readily. Um, but she's, she kind of sells it as like, well, I can't get your gold back. I don't have a really relationship with Jack. That's not going to happen. And I'm not going to ask for my kid back. But you're not going to have risk. She writes, this transaction would involve relatively little risk for you. You may laugh at this, for it may sound absurd to claim that shipping silver to England in wartime is not risky, but it's true. For the reason that the invasion will probably never happen. And if it does, it will fail. The entire plan is predicated on the assumption that the common people of England will welcome an invasion by French and Irish troops to come 
to place the Catholic on the throne. Nothing more absurd can be imagined. You may easily verify this through, through your own excellent sources. Um, the worst possible outcome, then, is that the bills are presented and accepted, but this would be nothing more than a routine, albeit large, transaction for the House of Hacklehaber. So basically saying you're going to make your money in the transaction, your transaction fees or whatever, and you're probably going to insure all that stuff too. Where she gets them is with this drawing of silver out of the continent, I guess, to, uh, to England, this idea that the value of silver is going to go up, so the Heckle papers buy a lot of it. But that's not the only way they end up being screwed, as we'll see. Then she writes, like, the, actually, the King of England, warning him about this. She talks to the, the French finance people and gets the different bills of exchange prepared. So there's actually a series of bills of exchange backed by French debt sent to the Hacklehabers. So it's like every couple weeks there'll be a new shipment of silver being sent to, to England to fund this invasion. We get a scene with her being kind of flirty with Rosignol and um, at the Cafe Esfahan. This is great. So the Esfanians, these Armenians, who used to have that kind of lower class kind of coffee, coffee shop in Paris when Jack was there. They fall on hard times, but somehow they're able to figure out a way to set up a, a, a coffee house in, in like Versailles. <laughs> it's actually called the Cafe Esfahan. So their meetings always end up on their feet. You know, the family, individual members of the family may have hard times, maybe galley slaves or whatever, but uh, you know, they always figure out a way for the family to carry on. It's a, uh, it's a little bit of commentary, I guess, on the Armenians' ability to, as a diaspora to, to uh, make their money. Well, yeah, another character is introduced here, Samuel Bernard, who is a actual was the historical figure. He was like a financier for France, and he's the one who prepares the, the actual bills of exchange and, and all the government debt stuff. But anyways, uh, we're kind of... Uh, all this, it takes a long time to set up, but again, this is like the high point of Eliza's character. This is really her, her great moment, her heroic moment, uh, where she's able to kind of become rich, fuck the Von Hacklehabers, and reestablish herself in the court as an essential figure and all this. She just basically turns her fortunes around through this, through this scheme, even though it's, end up gonna, it's gonna end up being a disaster for the French, but it's not really, she's, or she's, it's not her fault. That the invasion fails. All right. Then we get a scene uh, with the, the Battle of Sherbonne, which is a naval battle, and she witnesses it. And she witnesses, she actually sees this man who, this one armed uh, sailor who's got like a flail on his arm. It's, this is Yevgeny, who is somehow survived Cairo and made his way all the way back to, to England. He's going to kind of come in and write the story at various times kind of as a, a quasi-agent of Jack's, not under really commands of him, but kind of fulfilling his 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 loyalty to Jack. Um, they just call him Flail Arm, but it, it turns out it's Yevgeny. I don't think you figured it out until later, but, but there it is. Remember he got his hand shot off or whatever in, in the Battle of Cairo. He just replaced it with the Flail. I, I really do think Neil Stevenson just loved the idea of these goofy weird weapons. But uh, anyways, this battle at the sea, um, of course, the challenge for Eliza is to get to England, because she has to be in England to take these bills of exchange, take the silver, 
go to like the Hacklehaber, you know, agents in London, get the silver, and then take it to the mint to exchange into coins, right? She's going to do this. This is all going to be set up, and she's going to actually collect the silver herself. So she has to get to England and be smuggled to England to do it. But the other thing happening is once the British kind of defeat the French at sea, then that's going to doom the invasion, right? So then the silver is going to be sort of just still in England, right? Shipped over by the Hacklehabers. This was all set up in advance. Um, but one, some of the shipments, I think actually like four-fifths of the shipments end up being taken by Jean Bart as, you know, by a privateer, right? So the von Hacklehabers don't, most of the silver doesn't even get to England. It's just seized by Jean Bart and taken by the French back. So the French pay for this with French debt, but the von Hecklehabers are only able to sh deliver on a small portion of the overall sh silver shipment. And so th they're going to have to pay that back, even though it was stolen by the French. It's, it's a wonderful like little legal loophole here, dealing with privateering and piracy and, and all that kind of stuff. Because the stuff the pirates took, especially if it was privateers, a lot of that went back to the crowns that they were serving. Um, but anyways, it's, that might be getting ahead of our story a little bit here. But I, I guess that's it. That's, that's uh, Like I said, this whole section, even though this book, this whole volume is back between these two novels, this whole section I've been talking about, this over 100 pages, actually, um, almost 150, is set just with the Eliza story and focusing really on Eliza's most epic moment. It really is the greater, greatest moment, I think, in the whole, in the whole series. So um, I guess that's it. I guess that's all to really say about it. Um, again, like thematically, all this was set up before about the, about like the virtual nature of currency and the relationship between virtual currency and real currency and bills of exchange and all that. A little bit on science, a little bit on natural philosophy and the Leibniz stuff, but mostly this is about about money. And then you got that wonderful drama with her being basically cornered into a marriage with uh, Etienne Dacachon. Um, and then Bob, uh, I guess we got Bob's story here too. So a lot going on, but I guess not too much to add thematically to the story. I just, um, it is the peak of the Eliza storyline, it seems to me. So in the next uh, section, I'll be covering page 412 to page 521 or so. Um, and that will finish up the Eliza story where she goes to London and deals with this money and finds out how she's able to, you know, really screw to the von Hecklehabers. Then we'll uh, return finally to the Jack story, just briefly, where we'll pick up what he's doing in in um, India. He's now in India, also bankrupted, just like Eliza was bankrupted. Now Jack's sort of been bankrupted by forces outside of his control. Um, and then we'll kind of actually hang out with Daniel for a little bit. So. Um, so, like I said, Eliza's story is, is, is kind of wrapping up. Uh, she'll still be around, but her, her big moments are, are mostly over. So, anyways, I hope you'll join me as I uh, talk about the next section of The Confusion. This will be, that'll be episode four of my six, the six episodes I used to get through this volume. Um, anyways, uh, let me know what you think of any of this stuff. I may have got some of the details wrong because it's a really complicated scheme with the money and the silver and all that, but... Hopefully you got the, the main idea.
So I guess that's going to be it for now. Uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.